It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot me back. Great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. Well, good to have you back. I know you voted in between. I know there's a lot of people who are disgruntled across this country because it's an election that probably shouldn't have been, and it was, and we have a largely similar government to what we had before. But I digress. We're not here to talk politics today. Well, I was thinking, Scotty, in honor of the election results last night, that we could just run the show. We could replay yesterday's show today, right? That seems to be the theme of what happened last night. Just run it back exactly the same as it was. But I I guess we'll go ahead and put on a new show today. Do we get to charge the listeners, though? Is that something we can do? But no, maybe not. (laughs) Maybe we're not going to do that. Political commentary aside, that's not what we're here for. Hopefully you're off to a great start today training camp is right around the corner it opens sort of tomorrow jamie do you consider it the official opening of training camp because we're going to hear from players tomorrow they're going to go through their medicals and testing or do you consider skates hitting ice in an official capacity at the start of training camp no i think tomorrow is the start because of if it was just the medical testing and all of that and kind of orientation then no but because the players and coaches and GMs in a lot of instances are getting out there for the first time in a while, answering questions at press conferences. And I mean, significantly, I think a lot of those, they won't be Zoom press conferences this time. They'll be legit in-person press conferences, albeit with some social distancing and masks and all that. But no, I think just the fact that we get to hear from all these people again, for me, yes, it is the real official start of training camp tomorrow. And there's some disappointment in each of the market. So we talk about and talk to on a daily basis, Vancouver and Calgary. The disappointment in Calgary isn't going to change before tomorrow. There is disappointment in the Flames fan base that not more was done with the core in the offseason, that there weren't more seismic changes on the roster. The disappointment in Vancouver, of course, remains there are two players who need to be signed. They are very important players. They are arguably the two most important players for the Vancouver Canucks franchise moving forward. We've come to expect this in hockey, Jamie. This is where we're at. This isn't new ground that is being broken by Quinn Hughes, Elias Pettersson, their camp in the Vancouver Canucks. Many of these RFA situations bleed into training camp preseason. Sometimes they go into the regular season. Canucks fans are hoping not, but this is where we are, and you can understand why some in Vancouver are still pretty disgruntled about it. Well, and I think especially because of what happened last year with the Canucks, right, where they got where they were slow out of the gate and were never able to recover from that bad start, and the season just spiraled from there, and they end up finishing last in the division. Yeah, there were other things that happened too, obviously with COVID and injuries, but it just felt like they never had a chance because they were so bad out of the gate last year. Obviously, there's a lot of pressure on this team to avoid repeating that same mistake, and there's a lot of turnover too, right? So you want those opportunities in training camp, in the preseason, to build chemistry, to build that foundation so you are ready to go when the puck drops on the regular season. And I think it's fair to be concerned that, you know, if this drags on for another week, another two weeks, could that potentially impact how Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes get off to a start when the regular season does start? 
And if you are not convinced that I'm telling you the truth about where the fan base is at, for the most part, and hey, mate, you can argue it's a vocal minority if you want, but I think this is where a lot of people sit. I saw the reaction yesterday. You did too, Jamie. To me, this is a fairly innocuous clip. It makes sense as to why it happened, but it was Jack Hughes. He was on Tim and Friends yesterday. He's part of the NHL's media tour right now. He was asked about his brother, Quinn, about his pending contract situation, had this to say. You know, Quinn, he, he's deserved the money he should get. Um, you know, he's had two pretty pretty good years. I know last year he, uh, people were talking about his defense and, and his dashes, but, you know, when you play on one of the worst teams in the division and in the league, um, that's bound to happen. So uh, I think he's just waiting now. I, mean, I know he loves Vancouver and he wants to... He wants to play there, but but the number has to be right. So uh, we'll see we'll see when that gets done. Did Jack Hughes say anything that was untrue yesterday? No, of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. If you wanted to quibble, it would be just with the idea that you know Quinn Hughes was a victim of the poor defensive play by the Canucks rather than contributing to it. Which you know, let's Quinn Hughes didn't have a great defensive season, right? We can all agree on that. It's not as if he was you know purely let down by his teammates, but. This is a brother talking about another his brother, right? Of course he is going to try to be positive and try to say, hey, no, Quinn Hughes is a great player. That wasn't reflective of his true ability. I don't think Quinn Hughes' season last year was reflective of his true ability. And if you're taking umbrage at the idea that the Canucks were one of the worst teams in the league last year, all you got to do is look at the standings. They finished last in the North Division. They were objectively one of the worst teams in the league last year. I don't know why it should offend anyone that Jack Hughes said that. Ah, objectivity. It goes out the window when you're talking about fandom, when you're talking about your team, and you saw that reaction pretty swiftly in Vancouver. Probably the same swift reaction you saw among Senators fans after Matthew Kachuk over the course of the weekend basically chirped the Senators saying, hey, pay my brother what he's worth. We're the Kachuks. We know what we're worth. You're going to have to give us our money. Let's just get this done right now. Jack Hughes didn't go quite that far. And let's be clear, this wasn't Jack Hughes taking to social media a video he posted himself and firing a salvo at Canucks management and ownership with regards to his brother, Quinn Hughes. He was asked a question about his brother. If any of us were asked about our family members, very good friends, and it was in a contract negotiation, we would stump for those people we would get on a pulpit and say yeah my buddy my brother my sister pay that person what he or she is worth because he's earned it of course he's going to do that but it just tells you where people are at with regards to these players not being signed that even the slightest ripple in the waters of this contract conversation causes people to get upset about it and and it's always this interesting psychology isn't it the players are pumped up by the fans. They're pumped up by the media. Hey, these are really good players. They're foundational players. They need to be here. When it comes to paying them, well, I don't want to pay them too much. No. I mean, we don't want to pay them too much. We want you to regard this player as incredibly talented, important, and one of the stars of a game, but we don't necessarily want you to pay this player like that. And just to your point about, like, of course, Jack Hughes is going to say this kind of stuff about uh, about his brother Quinn. I mean, it would be a much bigger story if he had been asked that question and said, well, you know what? 
Didn't have a great year last year. I think he might have to settle for a little bit less. Ah, sorry, sorry, Quinn. You still got a lot to prove. I know you're my brother. That would have been a much bigger story than Jack Hughes coming out and saying, hey, this guy is great. He deserves to be paid. And I also like this text coming in, 960-960, to the Calgary text message inbox. Matt and Cochran says, that to me felt more like a veiled message to the Devils, much like Matthew Kachuk talking about Brady's contract. And that's a good point because... Jack Hughes is going into the final season of his ELC. He's going to be going through a similar process, different because Jack hasn't really established himself in the same way that Quinn Hughes has uh, in his first two years in the NHL. But Jack is going to be going through this process come the offseason, potentially. So I, I do think there's something to that, that this is just the player, younger players in general sending a message and saying, hey, listen, like we, we want to be paid what we are worth we're not really interested in doing your job for you and taking a discount just to make the dollars and cents work couple of texts coming in buffalo bill jack Hughes should worry about his own situation as a number one pick he certainly wasn't a stud quinn certainly was terrible defensively last year period he was asked about his brother and you didn't hear jack hughes in that comment yesterday saying quinn was a norris trophy candidate last year i don't know why people can't see that what he said was the derision directed at his brother was over the top. That's basically what he's saying, Jamie, that too many people, in his opinion, looked at some of the stats. We have another texture referencing Quinn Hughes's number last year, which was minus 24, not minus 44. Neither is good, by the way. Neither is one that you no. want to sign up for, even though we all know <laughs> that's a flawed statistic here in 2021. But what Jack Hughes was saying is, look, I think some of the criticism wasn't warranted. This is a really good player. He's my brother. Pay him what he's worth. Make it make sense. Move on. That's basically what he was saying. Yeah, and I think that's an extremely reasonable position to take, even if Quinn Hughes isn't your brother, right? Like, it's very easy to look at the situation and say, okay, yeah, Quinn Hughes, the minus number is ugly last year, but he's still incredibly talented. The upside is so high that you still want to lock him up and give him a good deal, right? That, that's You don't have to be related to Quinn Hughes for that to be your opinion. Now, as you and I have pointed out time and time again, Vancouver's unique in this situation because it has two restricted free agents that have not yet been signed and we're on the eve of training camp. But it's not the only situation like that around the league. We look at Kirill Kaprizov and what he means to the Minnesota Wild and the great year he had, unsigned with Minnesota. Rasmus Dahlin, unsigned with Buffalo. Brady Kachuk, already referenced, he is unsigned in Ottawa. This happens. It happens every single year. With the Canucks, it's just happening twofold. I want to throw this out there to the listeners right now. Those five players, Pedersen, Hughes, Kaprizov, Darlene, Kachuk. Who's the best player in that group? Forget about money for a second. Forget about the salary cap for a second. Who is the best player of those five? Pedersen, Hughes, Kaprizov, Darlene, Kachuk, 960-960 or 650-650. Jamie, if I pose that question to you, what is your answer? I'll go with Elias Pettersson, and I think probably some recency bias might point people in the direction of Kirill Kaprizov because he was sensational last year. But you look at their production in their short NHL careers between Elias Pettersson and Kirill Kaprizov, and it's very, very similar. Then you factor in Elias Pettersson plays down the middle of the ice, which we know is extremely valuable in the NHL. He's been an excellent play driver in his two years uh, in, in professional North American hockey 
I think Elias Pettersson is the best player in that list for sure. No disrespect to any of the others, obviously, but I just think the fact that he's a center, you know, he's the only center on that list, his point production, his ability to drive play, the potential that he still has that you still think he can reach, for me, it's Pettersson. I'm with you. I agree that Pedersen is the best player on this list. If there was anything you were going to use to depress a Pedersen signing number, what would it be? It's probably health. He's been yep. hurt in two of his three seasons. He didn't quite play the full complement of games in his middle season, though he played almost every single one. I'm not willing to say, oh, that was an injury-plagued season. But he hasn't been able to stay healthy. It's not a condition that only affects Elias Pettersson. It has happened to many players around the National Hockey League. But if you were going to use something to depress his number, you'd say, okay, we haven't seen him skate in 82 games his first year. He won the Calder. He was sensational. He played 71 games. Second year, almost all of them, a season that was interrupted, obviously, for everybody because of COVID. And then last year, we know Elias Pedersen, he got hurt. He played less than half the games in that shortened 56-game campaign. That won't be enough to depress the number a lot, but that's probably the only evidence you would use. Now, if I ask you this question and frame it slightly differently, I want to get to our texters because I asked the audience the question. I will get to your answers in a second. Who's the best player on the list? This is framed slightly differently, and this is where it gets more complicated in contract negotiations. Of those five players, Pedersen, Hughes, Kaprizov, Darlene, Kachuk, which one means the most to his team? So if we're just looking at, you know, which situation creates the most pressure for the team, right? I, I think you can take Rasmus Darlene and Brady Kachuk out of the mix because yeah, Ottawa wants to take a step forward, but they're not really playoff contenders, right? They don't see themselves as a team that has to make the playoffs this year. Buffalo, we know they don't really care at all about winning games this year, right? So I, I think it's you'd be hard-pressed to say either one of those players is the most important to their team when winning is much less of a priority than it is for either the Canucks or the Minnesota Wild. For me, it comes down to Pedersen again or Kirill Kaprizov. And I think I would still lean towards Elias Pettersson because he is a center. But I understand the argument for Kaprizov because we saw how he transformed the perception of that team last year, right? With his dynamic offensive ability, he was, you know, the, the, the stereotypical straw that stirs the drink for Minnesota. And it just feels like they need his dynamic ability in that lineup so, so badly to achieve their goals this year it's really close again I still lean Pedersen but I think Kaprizov is right there I think you can actually make an argument that Pedersen is number three now I understand your points Kaprizov is the most dynamic player the Minnesota Wild have ever had it's a competition between him and Gabrick but Kaprizov does it in a different way and the team is better and it's in a better position right now so you might be arguing Gabrick if you're going historical on it but we're talking about the most dynamic player and a guy who has helped change the way that that team is viewed. He hasn't done it on his own. But this is part of the conversation that agents have with with these respective organizations. Okay, you can use all the comps you want, but what's this player worth to you? And that's where Brady Kachuk enters this equation as well. TR and Courtney has weighed in. TR actually thinks Brady is the best player of the five on the list. And he believes he's the most important. Remember, we're talking about the captain of the Ottawa Senators. We're talking about a team that looks to take a step and has been looking for a foundational piece for a very long time. 
Brady Kachuk versus Thomas Shabbat on that roster. I mean, who do you want as the face of your franchise moving forward, Jamie? You want it to be Brady Kachuk, right? You, I, I totally understand that. And, of course, there's because he's the captain and they've invested that in him, there's going to be pressure to get him signed. I understand that. But, again, it's just if you remove him from the lineup for a period of time, yeah, you're a much less effective team, but does that really matter that much in Ottawa? So that's why I would have Brady farther down the list. Okay, so what's behind Brady Kachuk as far as leadership and what he brings to the table from a results standpoint as well? Because he's not a guy who's ever going to win an Art Ross trophy, but he is going to score you goals. He is going to go to the dirty areas. He's going to be that jack-of-all-trades that does everything really well, even though he might not be the most exceptional in any category at his position. The interesting conversation about Pedersen, and I don't think it diminishes his talent whatsoever. I just said I think he's the best player of the five, He's got Bo Horvat behind him. There's depth at center in his particular position. We're talking about Quinn Hughes, who, I don't know, coming out of this bridge deal, might end up with a higher AAV than than Elias Pettersson on this contract. I still think Pettersson's number will be slightly higher if they both go with the exact same term, but there's a debate as to which one means more to the franchise moving forward, isn't there? There is. I think it's easier to discount Quinn Hughes a little bit in this because of some of the defensive struggles we saw in his game last year, right? And that is, while I personally think that Quinn Hughes will overcome those and have a big bounce back season this year, it's fair to adjust your expectations for what his ultimate ceiling could be, right? Because of those, maybe you look at it, okay, and you know what? At his rookie year, after coming out of his rookie year, I thought he was going to be a, a Norris caliber defenseman, but because of what we saw last year, I'm downgrading that a little bit. I think he'd be a really good number one guy, but maybe not a true franchise defenseman. That's a fair take to have about Quinn Hughes, and if that is your opinion on Quinn Hughes, then I think you would slide him below Elias Pettersson in terms of his importance to the Canucks. Well, and this is where the conversation gets to. It gets to what does that player mean to your team? You might be able to point to other players around the league who are better in in any of these particular cases. But does that matter? It's about what matters for your team. This is where the Brock Besser conversation went a couple of years ago in Vancouver. Okay, you can say Brock Besser hasn't been healthy enough, but you're a team that doesn't have a lot of goal scorers. What does that goal scoring mean to your team? Forget about where Brock Bester comes in relative to a player in Florida or in Dallas or in Carolina. What does it mean to your team if you don't have those goals in your lineup? And that's how the agents will get into these conversations and try to drive that number up. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And all of these players, I mean, the team under the least amount of pressure is the Buffalo Sabres of Rasmus Dahlian, right? Every other team in this situation, and that's Ottawa, Minnesota, and Vancouver with the two players, feels at least some pressure to get the guy signed and get them in the lineup ASAP, right? And it's Brady Kachuk in Ottawa. Yeah, they don't have uh, playoff, real playoff aspirations like the other teams do, but as many people have texted in, he's so important as a leader. They're trying to build that culture. I understand that. And you can, if you're the agent and you're representing any of these players, there's a lot of different factors you can point to in each situation for why, hey, you, GM, you need to have this guy on the ice. Someone made the argument that Darlene is, the actual, is actually on this list the most important player to his team moving forward because Eichel is going to be leaving. He's not there yet, and if I'm Buffalo, I'm probably trying to go term with Rasmus Dahlin. I don't imagine Dahlin's camp would want that because if you if you lock up Rasmus Dahlin to term right now, you're not going to get a lot of money if you're Rasmus Dahlin, are you? Your body of work over your first three years 
you're not going to get a massive deal, and, and you're not going to hit the Kale McCarr number. Let's put it that way. No, you're not. And that's the difference with Rasmus Dahlin. I mean, they would like him to be that kind of cornerstone franchise defenseman piece, but it's just not clear that he's going to be. If he turns into that, then yes, he he could be the most important player on this list, but there's just the most question of whether he will actually get there for any of those players. Plus, you know, it, it could very easily be the case that the most important player to the Buffalo Sabres is not on the roster this year, right? It could end up being Owen Power. It could end up being whoever they draft with this year's pick. That's how far away they are from actually trying to win games, right? Is The most important player might not even be a guy who plays in the NHL for them this year. I do, I do sometimes chuckle at the assumptions because we don't know what Elias Pettersson is asking for. We don't know what Brady Kachuk is asking for. We know that all of their agents are going to try to get them the best value possible on the terms they want. Someone texted this in. Please sign your text. We'd like to give you credit. Listen to Ryan Kessler's quote on second contracts. It's how you build a winning team. You can't be super greedy. Pedersen wants to be on a winning team but wants to crush the team financially. Not super awesome. Do we know that Elias Pedersen wants to crush the team financially? I don't have anything to base that on. Do you? No, we we don't know that. Realistically, you can't say that. And I heard, you know, I've heard other people here at the station say maybe, you know, they think that if it's a bridge deal that the agency really wants to kind of reestablish the framework for bridge deals and what those look like in the NHL, but this is all guesswork. We we don't know the numbers that have been exchanged between the parties. We don't know the frameworks that they're dealing with, right? And Look, maybe a deal gets done and we look at it and say, holy cow, Elias Pettersson hit a home run and he completely won this negotiation against the Canucks. I would be surprised if that's how it finishes, though. I think it's much more likely that we look at this and say, okay, you know what? That actually kind of makes a certain amount of sense for both sides. I think it's way too early and we have way too little information to be confidently saying, you know, Elias Pettersson is trying to take the Canucks to the cleaners. Mike says anything over nine crushes us. Elias Pedersen is extremely unlikely to get a contract that begins with a nine. The Vancouver yeah. Canucks do not have the financial wiggle room. That would mean Quinn Hughes' number would begin with a six. That's not happening. Quinn Hughes is getting more than $7 million on this deal. So is Elias Pedersen. The question is, where do they come in and what does the term look like on these contracts? Pedersen's not getting $9 million unless he's signing for six, seven years, and it doesn't yeah. seem like that's likely whatsoever. That's the thing. And to the point that, oh, $9 million would crush the Canucks or anything over $9 million, well, not necessarily, but I don't think Elias Pettersson is interested in doing, you know, seven years at $9.2 million. I think if that deal had been on the table at any point during these negotiations, the Canucks probably take it and then try to figure out the math after that, right? Because that would represent such a potential win for them going long-term at that number with Elias Pettersson. Someone texted in, didn't the Canucks burn a year of Quinn's first-year contract after his college season was over? He played a few games near the end of the season, burning a year off the entry-level contract. Now the Canucks get burned. I disagree with the take that the Canucks get burned. This is regular business in the National Hockey League. This happens with highly touted players. The deal for them is they get to this negotiation quicker. The deal that helps out the team in the negotiation is that Quinn Hughes falls into this black hole category yep. as many have labeled it the 10.2c where they can't be offer sheeted so that's why you're not going to see a quinn hughes contract announced before elias Pettersons. because elias Pettersson, while it's unlikely at this point in time he can still be offer sheeted by a yes. team quinn hughes can't 
he has little leverage in terms of where he can go and what he can do. His leverage is negotiating the term and the number, but he doesn't have the leverage that, say, Jesperi Kakanyemi had. No, he can't threaten to go to another team. Like, he can literally only sign a contract with the Vancouver Canucks, and that's because they, as, he, as the texter said, burned that first year of his ELC when he was coming out of college. And that's also the kind of thing, you know, it's tempting. You can look at the Canucks situation now and say, oh, why did they did that? Why did they do that? Quinn Hughes got to RFA status quicker. That's also what happens with every high-profile college player around the NHL, right? Like, that's what NHL organizations do with those players. You can go down the list and find a ton of examples. It's pretty much just standard operating procedure. One, it builds goodwill with the player because you're getting them into the NHL. You're giving them that shot, that payday. But as you said, it's advantageous for the team as well, Scotty, because it prevents them from being eligible for an offer sheet when it gets to this point. We'll continue this conversation with David Amber of Hockey Night in Canada next. And it's one of the things that a lot of players around hockey aspire to. And one extremely prominent player says, it's not something I want. We'll tell you who that is and what it is next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. David Amber said to join us here momentarily. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday. Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd with you. The captaincy, Jamie. It comes up a lot in the National Hockey League. A lot of fans oh, yeah. have their opinion on which players should be captain, why that player should be captain, and yet not everybody truly understands the responsibilities that a captain has to take on, especially when you consider the market we're talking about. Depends if it's Vancouver versus, I don't know, Carolina. Use that team twice today. Maybe I should use a different one. You know what I'm talking <laughs> about. The media responsibilities uh -huh. and the burden of wearing the seed, it's a little more than just getting the guys up with a speech before the game. Yes, there's a lot that goes into it, but you're right. It depends on the market with, you know, what your kind of PR duties are going to be, your media responsibilities. That changes a lot market to market. But is it fair for me to say that if I tell you a prominent player isn't interested in the captaincy, that many people would react to that poorly? Oh, well, hold on a second. What's wrong with him? Why wouldn't he want to be captain? 100%, right? Oh, he doesn't have the will to win. Doesn't have the heart of a champion. Yes, that would be the reaction for a lot of people. And yet, logically, we all know this. You do not have to wear a C. You don't have to wear an A to be a leader on your club. And there are a lot of different ways to lead. Like, we've all come to that conclusion, haven't we? Yes, and we've heard that so many times from players, from coaches, from everyone, right? That, okay, yeah, the letters, that's kind of for the outside. But inside the locker room, they know who the leaders are. And it doesn't always necessarily correspond with who's wearing a letter on their jersey. There's debate as to whether or not teams should have a captain. Calgary's going through that right now, and it does seem important to the organization that they name a captain in the wake of Mark Giordano being selected by the Seattle Kraken. But there's a good there's a good theory out there saying, ah, you don't have to do it right away. Maybe wait, see what happens, and do you make any moves with your roster? Do you want to be hasty on that? Teams go through this. Well, they're going through it in New York. In New York right now, the Rangers, Chris Drury said in the offseason that they want to name a captain. They want to have a C on somebody's sweater. Artemi Panarin, and this was a translated interview, but he says, that that shouldn't be me. And a lot of people will look at the most prominent, prolific player and say, well, that's the guy. That's got to be your leader. And Artemi Panarin said, thanks, but no thanks. There's a bunch of different reasons, but I think there are other people who are better qualified for that job, quite frankly. And good for him, really. I mean, first and foremost, if somebody's not completely invested and and 
doesn't completely have the confidence to do the role, not confidence, but you know what I mean. If they don't think they would be a good fit for that role, then you don't want them doing that role, right? That That's good that Artemi Panarin has the self-awareness. He knows himself enough to say, you know what? I don't think that's the right thing for the organization. Here's the quote. It's not just putting a letter on the sweater and walking around taking pictures. It's a lot of rough work in the locker room. And this is a translated interview, but it was translated by NHL.com. And he goes on to say, it's not just about playing good hockey. You also have to give your energy between periods, motivate guys, giving interviews, being the face of the franchise. Overall, it's a lot of work off the ice. And I think I'm more effective in hockey, said Panarin. And I'm afraid that I won't be an effective captain. I don't even speak English. How can I motivate? I can only influence my own game, and they will listen to me without any letters. That's the most pertinent part at the end. Yes. Yeah, it is. But exactly what I said, right? He understands what's required of the role, and he's saying that's not really, that doesn't match up with my skill set, right? Just even from a linguistic point of view, that's not necessarily what I thrive at. I would be better in with different responsibilities. And But you're right, Scott. The thing at the end there, he's saying, I can lead without wearing a letter, right? I can lead without getting up and giving a rah-rah speech between periods. I can lead with my play on the ice. That's how I'm most effective as a leader. Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada's David Anberg joins the conversation now. Thank you very much for doing this. How are you today, David? Hey, fellas. How are you? I'm doing well. We are very well. Your summer was good. You're refreshed, recharged, ready to go? Yeah, we're getting there. I mean, we're all waiting for the big news out of Vancouver, right? Pedersen, Hughes. You guys have some, some breaking news for me? What do you have? What's going on with Pedersen and Hughes? Why is that a thing? <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm waiting, waiting for that, waiting for Minnesota, waiting for Ottawa, waiting for Buffalo. But, yes, with two RFAs still unsigned, there is a waiting game going on with the Vancouver Canucks. Before we get to that, I do want to ask yeah. you about that Artemi Panarin story. Isn't this what we should want from any of our athletes, especially prominent ones on our teams, that they can find the way they can be most effective for the team, and it doesn't necessarily fit into the job description that some of us have for them? Well, I mean, it's just so funny what we do, hey. Um, we, we ask guys to be candid. We ask guys to be sincere. We don't want them to be robots. We want them, you know, to have earnest conversations about their feelings and about what they like, what they don't like. And when athletes do, then we crap on them often. And I kind of say, why, you know, why do we do that? And I, I like the fact that he's, you know, being honest about this situation. I, I really have nothing but respect for Artemi Panarin. He plays really hard he plays well and he knows uh where he's in a best position to succeed uh being the captain of the new york rangers is something that takes on a, a pretty significant responsibility and if he feels that might detract from you know his role on the ice or that might uh, not be the spotlight in the situation he wants to be in i, I fully understand and respect that so uh, you know listen i think um you know, being honest and open about it is, is the best thing to do. We, we saw what's happened when guys have been thrust into situations that aren't the best for them. And, you know, it ends up being a, a disaster. So uh, let him, you know, ex- he explained it really well. And I, I, I think uh, it makes all the sense in the world. Doesn't mean he's not a leader, but he, he doesn't want to necessarily have to smack that C onto his, onto his sweater to prove that he's a leader. And you can be an important part, maybe the most important part to your team without having that C on your sweater. And this is where I want to transition into the RFAs. Not that they're all captains or waiting to be named captains of their teams. But we've got Pedersen and Hughes, as you already alluded to, in Vancouver. You've got Kaprizov in Minnesota, Darlene in Buffalo, Brady Kachuk in Ottawa. Of those five players, forget about for a second who the best player is, David. Which one of those five players means the most to his respective team? 
Oh my goodness! Come on, man! I've been off most of the time. That's a killer question. God, you had God. months. You had months to think about the answer to this and oh, anticipate I, that I would start here. I, I, you know, I haven't been on your show in a few months now, and I was like, yeah, you know, Scott will ease me into it. It'll be nice, fun <laughs> conversation, lighthearted, you know. And here we are, like this grenade is handed to me i don't know i mean listen if i had to say anything except Pedersen or hughes i mean i'm sure your audience is going to be like what is this guy talking about we all know how important that duo is for the success of the vancouver canucks you know having said that i mean chuck is an absolutely important key part to ottawa and the reason you know you have to kind of lump him in with those two is because ottawa's in this transition period where they're trying to sort of figure out where they're going to move forward. And he's a key part of that, right? It's about, you know, we, they got rid of Carlson, they got rid of Pajot, they got rid of Hoffman. It's, it, you know, on and on and on uh, with the guys who sort of vacated there since they went to the Eastern final a few years back, which seems like eons ago. And um, I think Brady Kachuk is that cornerstone guy that will represent, you know, moving forward for Pierre Dorian and the Senators. This team is very serious. Uh, about being a contender, very serious about um, moving in the right direction with these great young parts, and we have a lot of them. And I think he will be representative of that. If they can get him to a longer-term deal, not a little two-year bridge, but a five- or six-year commitment would be very key to sort of saying to the rest of the guys on that team and to that fan base and that community, we've turned the corner, this is our blue-chip guy, this is our captain, probably moving forward, and we've locked him down. So, you know... Maybe I'll, I'll say him only because of all those factors. You know, I, I think they're all, those five guys you named are all important, but maybe Brady Kachuk is the most important uh, sort of piece, not just on the ice, but what he'll represent to that franchise is, hey, we've locked down someone who's a, a foundational piece for, for our team moving forward. This is where I apologize for the question and ask you what you think of the Arizona Coyotes going back to the Kachina logo and that white jersey. <laughs> Thank you. That's a lot better. <laughs> uh, you know what, though? I mean, it's funny because, I mean, this is these are the things that we need to get resolved, I guess, in the next few weeks. When you look at those five names you just mentioned, there's, uh, you know, the, the dust is somewhat settled. The guys are about to hit the ice, and it's going to start to mean something. We have our first show, actually, on Saturday. We have the least and halves on Sportsnet Saturday night, the first actual preseason game of this season so we're at that stage now and what i'm really interested to see is is the looks of these teams um but we also have to get these pieces in place before we really in earnest will know you know how ottawa is going to look how vancouver is going to look etc well david on the theme of uh, slightly lighter questions you know we've heard matthew kachuk come out and speak up in favor of his brother brady getting a big deal in ottawa we heard jack hughes uh, have some comments defending Quinn Hughes as well. If you were in contract negotiations, which NHL brother would you want in your corner, Matthew Kachuk or Jack Hughes? Who do you think's done a better job of repping for his brother so far? Uh, in the corner and ready to drop gloves and probably Matthew yeah. Kachuk, I would imagine, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I wonder how I wonder how the families feel. And again, I, I we started this conversation talking about how players – we want them to be honest. We want them to be sincere. We don't want them to shelter and just give us cliche answers. And, and kudos to both, you know, Jack Hughes and Matthew Kachuk for being very honest about how they feel uh, about things and their brothers. You know, there's been a lot of speculation that the Kachuks ultimately want to end up together somewhere. You know, this strong American family, right? And they have one guy in Calgary, they have one guy in Ottawa, and there's all this speculation that they want to reunite, whether it's in St. Louis or in Boston or somewhere else. 
So I'm very interested to see, um, you know, what kind of deal is struck with Ottawa and the length of that deal. Is it going to walk Brady up to his UFA years? Is it going to, you know, give up some, some UFA years and keep him in Ottawa? So this, these are all the big questions. I mean, we don't get the kind of drama in the NHL offseason as we get in the NBA, and we're seeing today what uh, – uh, there's some Ben Simmons is you know saying he, he's not going to play another yeah. game for the Sixers and it's like it's an ongoing soap opera. We don't really get that kind of level of drama in the NHL, but there's certainly some some key storylines and narratives to keep an eye on over the next couple of weeks. So it's going to be very interesting and and it's, it is interesting when brothers speak up in this public forum and sort of lend their two cents into this into the, the negotiation and the bargaining. Well, and the interesting thing with both Matthew Kachuk and Jack Hughes, I mean, they're both going into the final years of their deal, so they have negotiations on the horizon. And I think, you know, as you said, we want these players to be candid, David, and I think the kind of unifying theme in their both of their comments was, hey, just pay these guys what they're worth, right? We all know mm-hmm. Brady Kachuk's a great player. Pay him what he's worth. Jack Hughes saying, we all know Quinn Hughes is a great defenseman. Pay him what he's worth. And I do wonder if if we've seen kind of a, an attitude change in younger players where it, it's not that they're going into these negotiations saying, hey, we have to squeeze every last dollar we can out of the team. But it does seem like they're more willing to kind of put their foot down and say, look, I know what I'm worth and I'm not really interested in budging just because that's going to help out your salary cap situation. Yeah, I, listen, I think that whole notion of the hometown discount is an antiquated notion. And, and the average player, the average uh, agent certainly isn't sitting there saying, yeah, we owe it to the team. There's no loyalty in sports. We've seen that time and time again. It's a business. We've heard that time and time again. And, you know, Jim Benning probably was sitting there pulling out his hair when he saw, you know, Kale McCarr, Seth Jones, Zach Wierenski, the numbers these guys were getting. Because, uh, you know, that's what Quinn Hughes is sitting there saying, okay, well, if Kale McCarr's worth 9.5, uh, you know, and Seth Jones is worth nine and Zach Lorensky is worth whatever, you know, somewhere in that ballpark as well. Uh, and Dougie Hamilton. So I am really curious to see how this is going to play out. You know, sometimes you want to be the first to the dance because you can maybe establish what song's being played. But right now, you know, Jim Benning's going to have to sort of do the top dance to whatever song uh, Quinn Hughes and, and CAA say, uh, simply because, you know, the, the, the comparables are now there. Um, the marketplace has been set to some degree. So uh, there's not a such thing as a hometown discount generally. I mean, we have seen it uh, in Tampa. Um, it's not so much a hometown discount as it is a tax discount. And for guys, you know, who want to stay there uh, a little longer term and knowing that there's benefits with the taxes or the lack of uh, state taxes there. So, you know, if Victor Hedman wasn't playing in Tampa, you know, that's an $11 million player in Tampa. He can be more of an $8 million player. So that's just how it's shaken down. Vancouver and, and all the Canadian teams don't have the benefits of those sort of tax breaks. So that being the case, you're going to have to pay full full freight to get these guys. So it, it's a tough time. It's a very tough time. And, and for, you know, for Jim Benning, you don't have to worry about one guy. you got to worry about two foundational pieces there. So I'm very interested. As we started this whole interview, guys, I was saying, Man, I'm really interested to see how this shakes down because this is this is a key few week period, uh, you know, coming up for the Vancouver Canucks as far as the future of the franchise. Well, and there's a psychology behind it too. Each knows that they're taking a dollar out of the other's pocket because there's only a finite amount of money to sign these two players right now in Vancouver. So it's an interesting psychological experiments as well behind the scenes. Maybe we'll never know the extent of that. David Amber of Hockey Night Canada joining us here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. 
We had this conversation last week. I'm interested in your opinion on it because there are a bunch of different ways to answer this question, and I'm not sure there's a wrong answer depending on what criteria you use. The Edmonton Oilers, the Calgary Flames, the Vancouver Canucks. Which of those three teams do you believe is under the most pressure this season? Oh, boy. Um, You know, I I think you can always make the argument, Edmonton, simply because, you know, when you have a generational player like Connor McDavid, there's just expectations that go with that. You know, Calgary certainly underperformed last year. Vancouver certainly underperformed considering how strong they were in the bubble the year before uh, in the postseason. But I think if you're going to look at those three franchises, just – Knowing the optics there with Edmonton, um, you know, the, the lack of playoff success they've had in the last 15 months, both in the bubble, you know, ceremoniously getting dispatched by the number 12 seed Chicago quite handily. And then, and then last year, uh, you know, getting swept uh, by Winnipeg, both times going in as the, the team favored to win. And you have the best player in the world in Connor McDavid. You know, that's, that there's serious expectations there. And, um, you know, I'd say the, the amount of pressure on that group um, in Edmonton, the management group, the coaching staff and the players is immense. Um, it, it's immense everywhere. We know it's a it's a results based uh, industry. But, you know, I think the expectation now with Edmonton, you know, much like we're seeing in Toronto is not just to make the playoffs, but to, to have some level of success in the playoffs and to show you're moving in the right direction. You know, because Connor McDavid's what, five, six? Six years now, I believe, into his into his career, and they've had one playoff series uh, victory in all his time. So, uh, yeah, now would be the time, and I think Edmonton is feeling a, a certain amount of pressure from the fan base, from the ownership group, etc., to to get things done starting this year. And yet, if you look at the other two situations, there is probably more change at various levels if Calgary and or Vancouver are not successful this year than in Edmonton, correct? Yeah, you you never know. Um, But yes, uh, you know, Calgary, it's been it's been now what a a hat trick of of letdowns, essentially. Right. Um, They had that incredible year in the West a few years back and then got knocked out by Colorado. And it's been followed up by really not a high level of playoff success that, yeah, they won a playoff round or the play in round or however it was termed before losing to Dallas in the bubble. And then uh, they don't make the playoffs last year after adding a lot of key pieces. So you have to believe there's only so many, you know, and we've seen uh, coaching changes and, and some managerial type changes in the, in these places. So, yeah, I, I think there could be bigger shifts uh, coming. Uh, the pressure's on in those markets and in Edmonton, they've, they've gone through so many uh, different iterations of who's in, you know, coaching and the GM uh, that, you, you know, they'd like to think they've got in place the management group that they're going to run with here in Tippett and Holland. So, um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, right, Scott. I, I think there's pressure in all of these, in all of these uh, hockey markets, and it comes with the expectation and passion of the fan base. And I think that's really cool, right? Because you know, you talk to players and they say it's fun to play in Florida, but you know, there's no, there's your feet are never to the fire there. You're, you're never feeling the intensity. Yes, there's a fan base, but it's entirely different than what you're mentioning in these Canadian markets. And, you know, I think some players really rise to the occasion and they, and they like that environment. They like that pressure. They like the fact that what they're doing is relevant. It matters. And I, I think that's something um, that this year is going to be really put to the test. Calgary, Vancouver, Edmonton, 
Uh, is there room for all three of those teams in the postseason? Uh, you know, that's yet to be determined in a, in a division where you have Vegas as well. So I, I'm really interested to see how this is going to shake down. And, um, and yeah, there's, there's enough pressure to go around for sure in Canada this year. And with the Flames specifically, David, you know, I think a lot of us, well, Brad Trivlin came out and said at the end of last year, right, we need to shake things up. We need to make changes because what we're doing right now isn't working. Are you surprised that they didn't make any bigger moves this offseason? Well, I mean, you know, Mark Giordano's gone. Uh, That was a calculated risk. uh, And they've lost their captain. They've lost their undeniable leader. Uh, You know, they get Blake Coleman, a two-time Stanley Cup winner, and uh, you know, Zadorov on, on the blue line. Yeah, it wasn't, we're not talking massive overhauls, but I think they felt like the year before they made very significant moves and it didn't translate into the changes they were hoping for. But, the, you know, I don't have to tell you guys, we've seen when Jacob Markstrom's on his game, you know, he is a world-class goalie and the expectation is he'll be at that level. And I think between him and adding Tanev last year, they really felt that they had solidified uh, what they needed to solidify. Uh, now you you make sort of a, a pretty dr- dramatic change when you lose your captain in the expansion draft. So I, I don't, I wouldn't say it's insignificant what's happened. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you in the sense that I did get us, you know, I did, I had, we've said this and we've heard this for years now. Well, if they don't win a playoff series, something's going to happen with Johnny hockey or, uh, or, um, uh, Mon- Sean Monahan or something's going to happen. And it hasn't happened. So we, in a way, yes, we're waiting a little bit for the other shoe to drop. Um, but having said that, I think the hope in Calgary from that management group is, look, we made some pretty dramatic changes. We gave out some pretty good contracts. Those guys have to live up to those expectations. And, uh, you know, you put a little complimentary group around the foundational pieces, the Kachucks, the Johnny Hockey, the Markstrom, et cetera, and we should have a good team. So if they play up to the expectations, I think they'll be okay this year. Uh, but that's a, a massive question. Uh, and, and, again, you know, do they have the speed uh, top to bottom? And do they have the chemistry that you see winning teams, the Tampa Bays, et cetera, have? Do they have that team chemistry? That's yet to be determined. So this is why it's such an interesting year this year, guys. I, I think there's just so many good storylines in each and every Canadian market. If the title of your behind-the-scenes drama is All or Nothing, what do you follow it up with if you're going to do another one? What's your title for the next one? <laughs> oh, my God. you talking about the Leafs? Of course. <laughs> yeah. um, it was I an interesting title to choose. It was an interesting title to choose. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I'm I, pretty sure, you know, some of the, the brass with the MLSC maybe regret allowing the Amazon cameras. in. The, this wasn't the year to have this happen. I think the expectation was, oh, yeah, we're going to have a, su- a really successful year, and it'll be cool that it's documented in a, in a way that it's being documented. And instead it's, you know, went from sort of a comedy to a tragedy uh, based on what happened with the with the series against Montreal, I don't know what they're going to do. And and Toronto's, you know, when we talk about teams under fire, you know, I'm based here in Toronto. I can tell you, uh, this team is under fire this year. When you talk about sort of last chances, and you know, you and Jamie were mentioning, could there be some changes in Edmonton or Calgary or Vancouver if, if things don't go well? I think very well there could be changes in, the, in any of those three marketplaces but th- there'll be substantial changes if the Leafs don't make the playoffs or if the Leafs make the playoffs and don't win around there just will be I, I think this is sort of one last kick at the can not just for the management and the coaching uh but the nucleus you know the big four if you will um 
They're going in with the big four still intact. It, it, we've seen it. It just hasn't worked having sort of three $11 million forwards. It's not a blueprint that any other team has used to have, you know, to, to try. And I remember Brian Burke calling it out sort of in real time, just saying, I, I can't see this working. Uh, and, you know, that was with the idea of the salary cap going up from 81.5 to, you know, at this point, they were expecting it to be maybe around 87 million. With COVID, it, it's held pretty steady at 81.5, 82.5. And that's been a real um, discussion point here in Toronto. Berkey's got to worry about a different group of elite players. You've got to get them healthy for, them, for their season in Pittsburgh right now. David, thank you very much. Big softball question coming your way at the start of our next conversation. <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thanks so much, and I, I'm really excited to, to hear the news coming out of Vancouver, hopefully sooner than later, and I hope it's uh, news that the uh, Canucks fan base will like. You just played and pandered very well to the market. Thank you, sir. All right, take care. That is David Amber of Hockey Night in Canada joining us for the first time just in advance of hockey season. Not to get too far off on a tangent, Jamie, I do find as a fan, it's one of the most difficult things to sit through is when you don't care that much about a regular season. And it's a long regular season in the National Hockey League, man. If you don't care that much because your season, and this is going to be the case in Edmonton, it's going to be the case in Toronto, and it's not that they won't find any joy or any moments. Opening night's always fun, and there's going to be some big matchups, and and there's going to be that big Austin. Maybe Austin Matthews scores four goals in a game, and you're talking about it for a couple of days. But there's not much to look forward to, and it's a really tough thing to sit through as a fan. Well, look how kind of unremembered the 2011-2012 Vancouver Canucks are, that regular season, right? They won the President's Trophy that year. But because they were coming off the crushing Stanley Cup final disappointment and everyone was only looking forward to can they go on another run, who even remembers that regular season? And you're right, even at the time, it felt so secondary to a potential playoff appearance. Secondary is a good word to use. He's the primary normally. I thought he was the secondary in one name category last night, and I'll tell you which one next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Oh, yeah, that's a classic right there. If you are after more classic rock, you will find the perfect mix in the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music from the 60s and 70s all the way to the 90s. Listen to the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music. Speaking of classics, he is certainly one of these. An iconic voice in the game of hockey is not going to be doing it behind the mic anymore, Jamie. This has been rumored for a number of days. It has now been confirmed. Jim Hewson is stepping away from play-by-play hall of fame play-by-play commentator he has announced his retirement from sports broadcasting this was in the ether and social media in the last few days but it had not been confirmed it has now been confirmed today that jim Houston will no longer go on calling games it was done according to the quote from jim and i have heard many of the same things here i don't think this is just smoke There is something real and it's personal here and it's family related as well it's a consultation that jim made With his family, he's very much at peace with it. He goes on to say, my only goal in this industry was to work at the highest level and on the last day of the season. I've had that opportunity a number of times. I will always be grateful for it. Yeah, and just an absolute legend in the industry. And, you know, I say that as someone now working in the industry, but just growing up, listening to him, watching him call games, one of the absolute best to ever do it in hockey. A fantastic, incredible career, as he said in that statement. Just the 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 privilege and you know and he earned it the ability to call the last game of the Stanley Cup finals at the highest level on hockey night in Canada 
He was fantastic, and I just wish him all the best in retirement. A dozen. He got to do a dozen Stanley Cup finals, and it was deserved. Jim, yep. excellent, excellent at what he does. He's always made lots of time for people within the industry who have asked for his time. We have done so on a number of occasions. We wish him and his family all the best in retirement. One of the legendary voices of the game will do it no longer. It's been made official today. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd. If you want to react to that, if you have a special memory that you'd like to share that has Jim Houston involved, you can hit us up at any time throughout the course of the show today. 960-960-650-650. When Aaron Rodgers is done with his career, many will call him one of the legends of the game. He's in that conversation. I don't know where you slot him, Jamie. His career's not over, so maybe we don't have to right now in the pantheon of all-time great quarterbacks was he the best Aaron last night at Lambeau Field (laughs) or was it Aaron Jones it was Aaron Jones man it was Aaron Jones he was the better Aaron last night he He was was. really good Aaron Jones I mean he got it what three touchdowns all told right two couple four four touchdowns excuse me yeah three through the air one on the ground he was really good Aaron Rodgers had some nice moments too he made some really really impressive throws but yeah I'm willing to give it to Aaron Jones last night yeah, there were two. There were two in particular that he made in that game last night that were Aaron Rodgers, man, how did he throw yep. that ball in there type of throws. The first was the shot down the middle, right down the middle of the field to Robert Tunyon, who just basically put his hand out, flexed it into his bicep and was into the end zone, and it zipped right by the ear hole of the Lions linebacker that was trying to cover him on the play. That was the best throw of the night. Then he made yes. a shot to Devontae Adams down the sideline a little bit later in the game that was in the Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, not many guys are able to make that throw the way he does category. Yes, there those were absolutely vintage Aaron Rodgers. And you're right. The one to Tunyon in the end zone was – it's like they are showing it on replay and – kind of diagramming the play and saying, okay, here's what he saw that made him convinced him that the window was open there. And it's like, okay, kind of, but you watch it. It doesn't look open at all, except he just put it exactly where it had to be. So they're showing the replay of that. So they show the wide angle, then they show the shot from the end zone to show you just how precise the throw was. And the next thing that every highlight pack has cut to is Aaron Rodgers looking like he's injecting something into the veins in his arms. He That chip on his shoulder, we know how big it is right now. He spoke about it after the game. He was asked about that celebration. He was asked about everything that's gone on since opening day. Have a listen. There's even more now than when I started playing. There's so many overreactions that happen on a week-to-week basis. So it's nice to to come out and have a good performance and get the trolls off our back for at least a week. And he'll do that to a certain extent. But by throwing that comment out there, Jamie, you know that people are going to come for Aaron Rodgers. Oh, yeah. Hey, you weren't very good in week one. You only beat the Lions last night. Hey, the Lions were fairly competitive early in that game, and then it was though they'd never seen rain before. As soon as it started to rain, what is this? What is this environment we're operating in? There's a fumble. Packers extended their lead, and then the result went the way we all thought that that result was going to go. Jamie, it's just one win. Is it all good with the Green Bay Packers? 
No, it's not all good with the Green Bay Packers. And yeah, okay, in the first half of that game, people were ready to bury them for the season, right? Because they were letting the Lions hang around. The Lions looked actually really effective. Major, major questions in that first half throughout the whole year so far about the Packers' defense specifically. It's great that they did what they did in the second half and came out and really stomped the Lions, kind of took control of that game. But so what? That's one good half out of four this year so far. So, okay, good. You get back to one and one. You take care of an opponent you're supposed to do. You blow them out even at the end when all is said and done. But I think given the inconsistency, given what we still saw on defense in that first half, yeah, there's got to be questions about the Packers. Aaron Rodgers had a very strong statistical night. He didn't rack up all the yardage. He didn't need to. Maybe it was because of short fields. Maybe it was because he hit some checkdowns to Aaron Jones, some flat routes that turned into touchdowns. All of a sudden, the fantasy football points go up, and he made a couple of those throws that you and I just talked about that reminded us all who he is when he's able to get himself to that level. I'm going to tell you this, though, Jamie. There's still some body language stuff with Aaron Rodgers don't like right now, and I'm uncomfortable with right now. And if I were a Packers fan, I'd still be a little more uncomfortable with right now. He took a couple of throws early in that game. Martez, Martez, uh, Sc- uh, Mar- Marquez, Scantling, yeah. Scantling, as pardon me, MSV. He, he underthrows the ball a little bit. MSV, eh, could he have fought a little bit better for it? Probably. Could he try to pull through? Yeah. Do you see Aaron Rodgers afterwards? There's this disgruntled body language about him right now. And he can use that for the good, or he can use that in a manner that isn't going to be effective for the team. And I'm not sure we're to the point where we were last season, where Aaron Rodgers was on a mission, no matter what the situation was with him, management, and the drafting of Jordan Love, and not getting him more skilled position players. He was on a mission to prove that I am so damn good, I'm going to make you look bad if we don't find a way to get this done, because it sure as hell isn't going to be my fault. I don't feel like all of the energy is directed in the right direction right now for Aaron Rodgers. The body language stuff and what you're saying and the the kind of acrimony that's just there bubbling under the surface, I think that's going to be there definitely if they're not winning. Then it's definitely going to be there. But it might even be there if they are winning, right? Like even if they – let's say they rattle off, you know, four wins in a row here. I'm not sure that's going away at any point this year. And maybe it is what you're saying, Scotty, that – yeah, he's. it's not even just about going out there and showing people he's still got it on the field. It's something else than that, and the energy isn't really doing what you want it to be doing because it's one thing to go out there and play with a big chip on your shoulder, right? And if that means if you're working extra hard and you're dialed in every week because you're trying to shut everyone up, that can be really advantageous for the team. But it's fair to question, is that what's actually happening in this situation? And the thing is with the Packers, I don't really get the sense that this is a team that's going to get up to, you know, 7-1 and one or something or 6-2 and two or anything like that because there are major questions about what's going on. And that's always been the big concern for me is if at, a, if at any point things aren't going extremely, extremely well for the Packers and Aaron Rodgers, it feels like it could just deteriorate in an instant because of everything you're laying out, the body language, the issues that we see play out on the field. Might be reading into it a little bit too much, but I see how things are going with his buddies. Devontae Adams is going to get his. He was great again last night. He's always going to be a statistical monster. He's going to be the biggest part of that passing game. Robert Tunyon, he's a guy that we know Aaron Rodgers liked. Aaron Rodgers wanted Randall Cobb back. He got him. He was 3-for-3 three three on targets with Aaron uh, Rodgers last night. Randall Cobb was. The other two guys, MSV 
and Equinemius St. Brown, 0 for 5 on those targets, and it was very apparent when they weren't completions where why Aaron Rodgers thought they weren't completions. That needs to change, man. That needs it's to not change. Great. Even if you're not satisfied with the, the teammates around you, you can't be showing it that way, can you? It's tough, really, because also you're kind of limiting yourself to a handful of players that are viable threats to get the ball, right? Like, it's Adams, it's Aaron Jones, you know, Randall Cobb, okay, that's great, but he's not going to be a major part of your passing offense realistically for the whole year. So if you're behaving like that and perceiving the other receivers like that, it's just it's cutting down your options out there on the field. It's going to make your team less effective. Green Bay, San Francisco this week. San Francisco looking for running backs off the street right now. Jamie, you might get a phone call. If you can show a nice 40 (laughs) time and you can post that somewhere on social media, they might give you a call right now. They just signed Jacques Patrick off of the Cincinnati Bengals practice roster. Yeah, you can head right now to your waiver wire in the next break, Jamie. Let's get to what they're saying. Okay, go ahead. No, I was saying, would it would it really shock you if Jock Patrick though came off and had like you know eighty carries uh, or sorry eighty yards on ten carries and a touchdown for the for the Niners this week? Not in that run scheme, it wouldn't. Not nope. in that run scheme. You get to play in that run scheme, you're generally productive. Everybody was jumping to the waiver wire for Eli Mitchell last week, and he gets yep. hurt in this game. They lost three running backs in this game. I don't know the health status of all of them or any of them, quite frankly, as we move ahead toward this game with the Green Bay Packers. But they're bringing in Duke Johnson, Lamar Miller, and TJ Yeldon to work out right now. And we're just three weeks into the season. This is going to sound crazy because we talked about the Baltimore Ravens injuries to J.K. Dobbins in that backfield. Then they lost their next two guys up as well in Gus Edwards and Justin Justice Hill. And we went, man, what are they going to do? They might actually been lucky that their injuries occurred right before the 49ers right. did because they got to choose from guys like Latavius Murray who yes. all of a sudden was out of work. It is interesting, too, because it's kind of the two teams that I think a lot of people would say are the two best rushing teams in the NFL, or at least have the two most kind of plug-and-play schemes. But just because you have that ability, you'd still rather have your first-choice guys in there. Nobody wants to be working out Lamar Miller and TJ Yeldon right now. Worked pretty good for Baltimore on the weekend. Man, that running game was on fire. Let's get to what they're saying. Did you watch the whole Monday Nighter last night, Jamie? I watched parts of it. I, w- I was not glued to the screen uh, for the entire thing. I was flipping over to the election results a little bit, but I caught most of it. Okay. So of the percentage you watched, how much how much of that percentage was spent on the the traditional broadcast and how much was spent on the Manning cast? So here's the thing. Not much on the Manning cast, because what I have discovered is if anything really entertaining and interesting gets said on the Manning cast, it's going to be up on social media minutes later, right? So what I've kind of settled into now, and I know it's only week two of this, but I'm watching on the traditional broadcast because I find it kind of a little easier to follow the game and the ins and outs of what's happening on that broadcast. But I know that if there's something I really need to see, something I really need to hear, I'm going to be able to find it. I'm going to be made aware of it on the Manning cast. Well, and it just depends on what type of broadcast you want. If you want it to be a little bit of commentary on the side, well, you can watch what's happening. You don't have to listen to the traditional play-by-play and color analysis, or if you want that traditional. I was probably, mm, 
I'd say two-thirds of my viewing was on the traditional broadcast last night. I made more time for the Manning cast, but I wasn't all the way in. I did find this entertaining. though. They've got regulars already. They're two weeks in, and they're bringing Rob Gronkowski back for a second consecutive week. This was pretty funny from Gronk last night on watching film or maybe not watching film. He goes, do you ever watch film? And I said, no. I don't. It's I just run by guys. If, I, if I'm feeling good, I'm feeling good. <laughs> so I don't know how to answer that. I don't watch film, but I do watch keep it film when, when, the, when the team is showing it. <laughs> so, uh, and every once in a while, I watch games like right now and study them. But uh, I, I actually, you know, definitely do I, yeah, check the I see you taking notes and everything. Me. Yes, I definitely. <laughs> and I actually do go up to Tom because I know Tom watches like, I don't know, 40 hours of film a week. I go, Tom, who's covering me this week? What type of coverages are they doing? I go, that's why I love playing with you, Tom. It was pretty funny for a couple of reasons. His dog barked there, and then he introduced us all to Ralphie last night on the broadcast as well. Of course, he watches film. Gronkowski has done a great job of creating this party just frat boy figure if you will it's probably the wrong yeah. term to use right now but you understand just just this this bro yeah man i just happen to show up for games and i'm pretty good when i do and i like football and it's a lot of fun that guy works his ass off he really does and it helps to have tom brady in your corner right who you know if yeah you're right gronk is he he's he knows who's going to be covering him and what kind of coverage they're going to be running he's well aware of that but it does help to have Tom Brady in your corner feeding you some little extra tips that you might have missed. You're right. He's he's crafted that kind of goofball image, but you don't have the career that Rob Gronkowski has had without working really hard. And you don't get away with having that image in the organization which with, with which he spent most of his career unless you work extremely hard and pay attention to the details. And that's what you never heard anyone in New England accuse Rob Gronkowski of being a bad teammate. And we all know what the edict is in New England. You better work yeah. and you better know your details. You better not cost this game, this team a game or a play even for lack of preparation. And if he had been what he creates his image to be, he wouldn't have lasted there. No, he would have been washed out. What, what's, what's Bill Belichick's motto? Do your job, right? That's what everyone in New England is expected to do. So Rob Gronkowski did his job in New England. I'm sure he's still doing it in Tampa Bay, too. We talked about it yesterday. We had Ren Lavoie on. There were a couple of Jonathan Drouin interviews done over the weekend that aired yesterday, one on RDS, one on TV uh, Sports. Jonathan Drouin. He left the Montreal Canadiens for personal reasons. He spoke publicly for the first time yesterday as to why he stepped away from the team. You know, I've had anxiety problems for many years, um, insomnia problems that, that relate to my anxiety. And, um, you know, that, that week in Calgary where we played three games, um, you know, I missed all three of them and um, wasn't feeling good. That was where, um, you know, it hit a wall for me and it was time to step away from the game and uh, literally take a step back from everything and kind of enjoy life and um, I needed it. Um, you know, it was hard for me to, to do at that time and obviously playoffs were coming around. So um, it was an easy thing to do and um, I'm proud of what I've done and I'm happy I did it. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm 26 years old, so uh, I wanted to do it at that point in my career and, and feel good for the next year. Good for him. Good for him for stacking away. Good for him for recognizing that it was counterproductive for him to be playing hockey at that time, and that he needed to get his life in order and be a better place mentally. Jamie, we are more accepting, but the stigma surrounding mental health, it is still not gone. There is still much work to be done. 
Oh, absolutely. I think especially for high-profile athletes, right? I mean, we, we look at the conversation we've been having throughout the summer. I know we're into fall now officially, but that conversation that we had throughout the summer about Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka. And, you know, Jonathan Drouin is obviously not at the level of, uh, you know, he, he's not on the same platform that they have at, at these big international events, but he's still a very high-profile player within the NHL. And I think for whatever reason, we still expect – these extremely successful athletes to be somehow immune to mental health struggles, to mental health issues. And I think, you know, the only way ultimately that stigma is going to be erased is by people talking about it. And I'm, I'm glad that Jonathan Drouin felt comfortable enough to give these interviews and to go public. I'm glad that he took the steps he did. He seems to be in a much better place now. And I really hope that continues for him. I have not had insomnia in my life, but I think all of us have probably gone through, and I hope most of our listeners haven't had to experience that as well. I've had, had to go through a lot of days in my life because of parenting or because of jobs or quick turnarounds <laughs> where, no, but you know what I'm talking about. You don't sleep much, and you feel like yeah. you didn't sleep at all, and you know how difficult it is for us to do our jobs that don't rely on being physically and mentally ready to go every single day. Imagine what it's like for a professional athlete when you're not sleeping and it's still taking the wear and tear on your body. Not sleeping is the worst, man. Not getting a good night's sleep, it just makes you feel awful the next day. Sleep is the best, really. Everyone should be striving to get a good night's sleep. But you're right, when you don't get it, Scotty, it's just it's really hard to be at the top of your game. The other derivative of this is an acceptance by professional teams, regardless of sport, that, okay, there are going to be players on our rosters within our organization, let alone the people who work for our organization outside of the hockey players or football players, what have you, that are going to have mental health struggles. We need to have infrastructure in place to help those people, and the progressive organizations have been doing that for quite some time and continue to. You and I noticed that, for example, in Washington, they made a hire in the last couple of days. Dr. Amy Kimball is the team's senior director of team and organizational development. She is going to do player development, mental training, prospect evaluation as well on the psychological side of things she's been working in the national hockey league for the past 15 years yeah and that's going to become more and more common in the nhl in other sports as well as you said putting the infrastructure in place so you can get ahead of this right so you're not reacting when something like this does inevitably come up when you already have a pretty good idea that hey we have the people in place we have the structure the process all of that we know how we're going to approach these in the best way for our organization and for the player involved. Yeah, instead of pretending, well, there's nothing going on, I don't have anxiety, I've just got to get over it, I, I don't need to talk to anybody. Instead of pretending that, how about, okay, when you are going through challenges, here are the resources we have for you, and let's figure out how to deal with this best so that we can yeah. carry on and move forward productive and we can understand what's going on with you and you can understand what's going on with you. Yeah, we can help. We can help. And exactly. You're not letting it get to a point where it becomes really, really difficult to address if you're actually getting to it early. Good stuff from those broadcasts. Yesterday, it'll be a conversation that continues throughout the National Hockey League, and certainly it's one that we're going to advocate for on this show as well. We haven't even mentioned the AL wildcard race and everything going on in baseball right now. Ooh, it was one of those rare nights. It was a rare night in September for the Toronto Blue Jays. We're going to talk baseball next with Bob Nightingale right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. That didn't turn out to be the story last night for the Toronto Blue Jays. Yandy Diaz going yard for a three-run shot off Robbie Ray. Got things kick-started. 
expanded that lead up to 6-2. Ooh, the Jays made it close in the ninth, Jamie. I don't know how much you were flipping it. back and forth or if you had a second screen going last night, but 6-2, it's Tampa Bay, best record in the AL. Ah, oh, this should be no problem. They'll close it out. All of a sudden, the Jays have a couple of runs, then all of a sudden they've got the bases loaded. Just couldn't quite get it done last night, which has been a rarity this month for the Toronto Blue Jays. It has. Yeah, they made things very interesting. I mean, I will say, uh, you know, shout out to the home plate umpire last night. Didn't have his greatest game behind the plate, I didn't think, including in that ninth inning. But look, I'm not going to pin it all on the umps in that one either. No, he can't. And there were a couple of calls. Uh, it should have been high ball four. That's a walk and a walk run in. Didn't happen last night. The one thing I can't stand, though, when you know the ump, and again, you can't hang the loss on one guy. I hate when games end like this, though, when it's your team that you're cheering for. When you know the umpire's a little erratic and a little generous with the strike zone, anything you think might be close and you have two strikes, you're going to yeah. have to swing in that situation. You can't go down with the bat on your shoulder there. Yeah, you got to adjust. That's true. But it's just, it's, it's frustrating. It's always frustrating to see a, let's just say, inconsistent home plate umpire. Sure. Jays have been the model of consistency this month. In fact, it's served them well in the last couple of weeks when they've lost the first game of a series. They have come back to win those series. They've won seven straight series going into this one with Tampa Bay. They'll try to even things up today before winning the rubber match the following day. Cost them a little bit last night. The idle Red Sox, they gain a little bit of ground. They don't gain ground. They expand their lead over the Toronto Blue Jays. And the yep. Yankees held on. Those two games were coming down to the wire last night. And Toronto, uh, Toronto couldn't quite get over, and the New York Yankees didn't quite fumble things away against the Texas Rangers. So where we stand right now, Toronto's still sick, sitting in that second slot of the wild card chase. The Yankees just a half game back now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be tight. It is going to be close right down to the end of it here. Really, all of the possibilities between those two, three, those three teams are still in play, right? Like the Yankees could catch the Red Sox. The Jays could fall out. The Red Sox could fall out. Anything can happen. It's all up in the air for those three teams down the stretch. And you have to remember how quickly these things change. A week yep. and a half ago, didn't it feel like the Red Sox were the team in the most trouble? Yeah, probably did, right? That they were going to in danger of completely sliding out and missing altogether. Well, you look at what they have on paper relative to the other two teams, and you saw a COVID outbreak with the Boston Red Sox and their results spiraling downward, and you went, oh, I don't know if they're going to get this turned around. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you realize the Red Sox have this terribly easy schedule down the stretch relative to their two competitors in the AL East, and things are going okay now, and they're taking care of business against teams like the Baltimore Orioles, and now... Doesn't it feel like it would be a massive shock if Boston missed? Yeah, at this point, just because they do have that two-game cushion over the Yankees, it would be really, really disappointing. Doesn't mean it can't happen because, I mean, we've seen this Red Sox team go on a slump before, right? It's totally in the realm of possibility, but it would be a major disappointment for them. Bob Nightingale covers the major leagues for USA Today, and he joins us here on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Thank you very much for doing this today, Bob. How are you? Yeah, doing great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. We just said it would feel like an abject failure at this point if Boston missed. Do you agree with that assertion? You know, I do agree. Uh, you know, besides, you know, they've been in two up in the loss column. A very favorable schedule. And they have a lot of off days. I think they have uh, next 12, you know, like they've had four off days and 12 days when the schedule ends where, uh, you know, the Yankees are almost on fumes. I, I think the Blue Jays only have, 
you know, one-off day. Uh, yeah, Yankees haven't had a day off since September 2nd. And they're 16-11 during that span. They're going to finish a year with 29 games in 31 days. Uh, Jays have to play, you know, 16 games in 17 days to close it out. And then the, uh, you know, four off days for the Red Sox with a, uh, you know, with with light schedule uh, opponent-wise. Which team is the most dangerous should it get into the postseason? Boston, Toronto, New York. Absolutely, Toronto. Uh, very scary. You know, with the, uh, with the offense, you know, I've talked to Ben Scouts that are watching them right now, saying they're so tough to pitch to. Uh, you know, Robbie Ray had a hiccup, but, you know, he's pitching, you know, like a Cy Young winner. Uh, you know, everybody but Ray U is pitching well for them. So I, I think Toronto, they're, they're the X factor. I mean, you can see them, you know, not even making the playoffs, or you can see them going to the World Series. Uh, a young, dangerous team, they're, they're only going to get better in the next couple of years. So there's the prospect of being in a wild card game. There's also a prospect of having to play a play-in game to get into a wild card game with, let's at this point assume it's the Red Sox if things hold right now. If you're Charlie Montoyo, if the Toronto Blue Jays, how do you start to line up your rotation over the course of the next couple of weeks? Well, right now, I think you've got to just, you know, play it straight. You've got you on the uh, on the injury list. And, uh, I mean, you you will there's a playing game. You know, it's almost like you've got to start Robbie Ray in that game. I'm not sure if you trust anybody else. You know, hopefully it doesn't come to that. So Robbie Ray can pitch the wild card game. But, you know, he's, he's the guy you want on the mound. Bob, the other kind of uh, storyline that's really developed here in September, at least I think from a Blue Jays fan's perspective, is because Vladdy Guerrero has gotten so hot, you know, everyone assumed that Shohei Otani was going to run away with the American League MVP award. Now some people are saying maybe Vladdy has got himself back in the race. Who would get your vote for AL MVP right now if you were to cast it? You know, uh, God, I wish you'd just do a co-MVP. It, it, it'd be Otani because the historic nature. I certainly understand uh, the Guerrero uh, support. But I think, you know, there's a, uh, you know, there's 30 voters, uh, you know, two in each American League city. You know, I'd be shocked if Otani doesn't get at least 20, if not 25 of those first place votes. I just think what he's done from the historic nature, uh, I don't think there's anything Vlad could do. I think Vlad could hit. 15 more home runs, it's not going to make a difference. I love the fact that, you know, I, I like the MVP coming from a, a contender uh, and certainly a, a playoff team, but it seems like we've gone away from that. I mean, Mike Trout's won a few MVPs, and they weren't uh, contending when he won those MVPs either. So it'd be kind of, you know, silly then all of a sudden say, okay, now we're not going to give it to a uh, uh, Otani. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I see both sides. I I just think what Otani's done for both sides, uh, it, it's too hard not to give him the award, even though you know, even though it, it is unfair to Guerrero, it really is. All of the drama in the AL postseason race right now, it's on the wild card because the division leaders, they're home and cool. Of those three teams, Tampa Bay, Chicago, and the Houston Astros, who do you think has the best shot of going to represent the AL in the World Series? I think Tampa Bay, it's what they're doing. Uh, man, they're playing good baseball. I mean, they have all year, but they just, you know, beat you in so many different ways. Uh, yeah, I worry about the White Sox. They've just been kind of so-so since the All-Star break. Now Carlos Rodon got pulled out early. Uh, you know, they're, they're starting pitchers. I, you know, I know they're putting them on the injury list to kind of give them rest, but they haven't been sharp. 
Houston, you don't know. It's that wild card team. I mean, you, you have no idea what you can get from that, that starting rotation. I think Lance McCullers is huge for that team. They certainly have the offense. I like that offense, you know, better than uh, you know any of those any of those three teams. You know, maybe you know, better than anybody in in baseball for that matter. Uh, but you're not sure what you're going to get. I, I think Tampa Bay, you know, has got to be the, uh, the, the the team to beat. I mean, they're vulnerable, but you know, you got to go with them. Bob Nightingale of USA Today talking Major League Baseball as we work our way through the stretch drive over these next couple of weeks and look forward to October. He joins us on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You mentioned the Chicago White Sox. It caught most people off guard when they hired Tony La Russa in the offseason. We all wondered what it was going to be. What's been your evaluation of him running that team this season? It's It's been great. I, mean, I was in the minority. I remember when I wrote the story uh, during the playoffs that he was going to be the next manager. People didn't believe it. And, uh, yeah, he's a Hall of Fame for a reason. And I think people, you know, he had a misperception that he retired. Well, he was still working in front offices. He was in the Red Sox front office when they won the World Series. You know, he was working the Angels. So he's still involved. And, hey, this is about the same team as they had a year ago. But just a you know different guy at the helm. It's very you know it's very similar to what you know, poor Rick Renneria, but it's very similar when when they uh, fired uh, Rick Renneria with the Cubs and hired Joe Madden just to take him to that next level. I think he's uh, you know brought a lot of uh, professionalism in, in there. A lot of uh, you know uh, you, you got to answer a lot of responsibility. So I I think it's a perfect choice to what they needed. Uh, you know we'll see how long he stays. You know just by a couple of years or so. But you know I think. It's, I think it's a very cool story, too, that, you know, in the uh, first run of the playoffs, it's going to be the White Sox and Houston Astros, a 77-year manager going against a 72-year-old Dusty Baker. Maybe they'll get out there and wrestle before the, before the game. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah they've, had the, they've had their feuds over the years. It's pretty funny, particularly when, yes. uh, when Larissa was in St. Louis and uh, Dusty was in Cincinnati. Yes, they have. The Seattle Mariners are probably going to fall short. Most people expect that, but it's been a relatively successful season. What does the future look like for the Seattle Mariners, regardless of whether they make their way into a playoff spot or not and snap that 20-year drought? Well, they got to win at some point. I mean, I think if uh, if they don't win next year, you know, head, head should roll. I mean, they've had a, you know enough rebuilding right now. I mean, it's a uh, you talk to anybody in baseball executives. It's an absolute joke that they've gone this long without making the playoffs. I mean, you're talking, you know, 20 years, the longest drought in North American sports. Uh, you know, that's a, you know, people love the, uh, you know, love that situation up there. They got money. They got a great fan base. And, you know, there's no way this should be happening. So at least they're knocking the door. You know, who knows what would happen if they kept the uh, grade in their closer. And, uh, you know, they've had some late inning bullpen problems. I know Toro is playing well. But I, I do think they miss Grayman. But I, I think next year you bet you better make the playoffs. I mean, that's enough. So Seattle surprises, but probably isn't going to be in the postseason. San Francisco surprises and is definitely going to be there. Might actually beat the Dodgers. Currently a one-game lead in the NL West. What chance do you give San Francisco of holding on to that and avoiding that wild card game? Well, I still like their chances. I just think that's a team you know built for 162. Uh, yeah, and sitting in first number, you know, and there's a game 163 at least will be in the Oracle Park in, in San Francisco. So I still like their chances to hold on, but you know, when if the uh, you know, presuming the Dodgers win that wild card game, so the two teams play 
play against each other, then I'll take the Dodgers. I just think that the Dodgers in a, in a short series when you're throwing out, you know, uh, Max Scherzer and Walker Bueller and uh, Julio Urias, that's that's tough to beat. Uh, I don't even sure Kershaw would even pitch in that short series. So, uh, you know, I'll take those three starters against really anybody, anybody in the game. Do you still have the Dodgers, Bob, kind of as the overall favorites to repeat as the World Series champions? I, I know they might have to go through that kind of coin flip wild card game, but as you just laid out, the talent in the rotation on the roster overall, it's kind of overwhelming when you start to look at it. Oh, it really is. I mean, the, uh, that trade it really helped them. I mean, that didn't happen to them. Maybe it was a Bauer giggle out because then they would have uh, they would have you know gotten Scherzer and Trey Turner. I'm going to go a little bit of a sleeper. Not that big a sleeper, but I'm going with Milwaukee Brewers. I, I like the Brewers to win it all. You know, they got the three guys at the top of that rotation, you know, uh, you know, with Burns and, and Woodruff and, and Peralta. And the two guys at the back end, you love with Devin Williams and, and Josh Hader. Uh, hey, you know, they're getting enough offense. You know, Yelich is starting to come around a little bit. So I'll, I'll take the Brewers. I know the Dodgers obviously be the uh, – you know, the favorites on, on paper, but I, I, yeah, something special with the Brewers. That's a very good team. Well, it's interesting as well, because as you laid out, you know, the Dodgers, they might have to go through the wild card game and then play, you know, another extremely good, uh, good team in the San Francisco Giants in a playoff series. So the Brewers might have a little bit of an easier path to go deep in the postseason. I like that kind of under the radar pick, as you say, a bit of a sleeper. In the NL Central, the St. Louis Cardinals have really kind of rescued their season by getting hot recently here. It looks like they're kind of in pole position now to take that second wild card spot uh, in the National League. What's gone right recently for the Cardinals? You know, just everything. I mean, they, when they put Tyler O'Neill in between uh, Goldschmidt and uh, Aaron Otto, you know, that, that's worked out like a stroke of genius. Uh, O'Neill has really caught fire there. Uh, you know, people kind of laugh when they did the trade deadline deals. They're getting Jay Happ and John Lester, but particularly Lester has been, you know, everything. You know, it's almost like Ben's Lester with the way he's pitching. Uh, yeah, just getting the key contributions. It's almost like the underachieve for so long. In typical Cardinals, just like 2011, you know, they they get hot at the right time. Uh, and what was it? Fan graphs had him at the 2.8 percent odds of uh, making the playoffs and on September 7th and here we are less than uh, you know two weeks later and uh you know like 80 percent odds of making it so uh they always believe themselves they never panic can tell you what you know when you got Adam Wainwright and he's pitching as well as anybody right now in the National League you know uh they'll take their chances with Wainwright versus the Dodgers or the Giants I mean I'm sure baseball will go ballistic you know for a 103 104 uh, you know win team behind the playoffs one and done. That's the, that's the way it's set up. Uh, and the Cardinals are you know coming in with a whole lot of momentum. Well, first of all, I love the shout out to Tyler O'Neill because he's a local product, and a lot of people up here are watching him very closely and really enjoying the success he's having. And I'm glad you brought up Adam Wainwright. You know, you talked about kind of vintage John Lester that they're getting. Adam Wainwright has completely turned back the clock. Uh, at the age of 40. I, I'm not sure I remember the last time a player has kind of improved this much based on their previous years or their recent seasons uh, and gone back to kind of all-star form at this point in their career. No, it's phenomenal what he's doing. I mean, you know, we all saw what, you know, like a, like Nelson Cruz is still performing after 40, you know, Bonds obviously did, but the, 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 a pitcher just getting better and better. And, uh, you know, now it's not even a doubt whether he'll retire or not. You know, keep going. Uh, he's he's finally finished top 
you know, five or so in the uh, Cy Young race, but he's been phenomenal. It's just fun, you know, seeing a guy know how to pitch. And, uh, you know, you don't have to throw 100 miles an hour. You can throw 90 as long as you know where they, you know, you control that fastball. And that's what, that's what he's done. And, of course, a great uh, curveball. No, that's dangerous. I mean, Wayne writes that one guy is like, uh-oh. And I'm sure uh, the Dodgers and Giants have got scouts watching the Cardinals very closely right now. I want to follow up on Tyler O'Neill as well. He's the NL Player of the Week, helping spearhead that 6-0 and run for the Cardinals last week. What important step have you seen in his development this year as he's become a full-fledged major leaguer who can get it done? Yeah, it just seems like he's a uh, much more in control. Before, it was almost like all or nothing, and you know, you wondered uh, what you're going to get. Yeah, you know, I kind of wondered, uh, you know, will he really be the major league player that they thought? And I think the Cardinals did too. I don't, you know, I don't think they were ever close to trading him, but I'm, I'm not sure they thought that, uh, you know, he was a lock to, to help him out as much as he has. Uh, but yeah, just you know, I, I think because he's so big too, you're thinking, okay, this guy's not going to. Uh, control the strike zone and everything else, but he's getting his walks now. He's playing, uh, you know, uh, great, great defense and just, you know, everything, 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 everybody always envisioned. But I, I think because of his size, just being that big and strong, you're thinking of a guy who's not good, uh, a good athlete, but he's a, uh, but he's been tremendous. And when they put a, uh, put O'Neill in the middle of that lineup, uh, that, what was that? Oh, on uh, August 22nd, He's got that, you know, eight-best slugging percentage in in, uh, in in all of baseball, 635. He's been fabulous, and he's made that team go, uh, you know, with the uh, Goldschmidt and Arenado catching fire, too. Well, the guy who's making the Cincinnati Reds go and, and not go away for those in that wildcard pursuit is Joey Votto. As I stay on the Canadian train here, you talked about a couple of veterans who could pitch in St. Louis. That's a veteran who can hit. What does this season represent in what has been an incredible career for Joey Votto? You know, the fact he's finally hitting for some power, uh, you know, his detractors thought, you know, why is it, why hasn't he been doing this before? I thought he should have hit more home runs before. Uh, I know he got a lot of criticism over the years in the, in Cincinnati, you know, with the coaching staff would say, Joey, we don't want you to take a walk. I don't care if the, the pitch is a quarter of an inch outside. When you go to first base, all you're doing is clogging those base paths. We want you to swing for the fences, or, you know, drive in some runs. And that's what he's doing. He's sacrificing his batting average for home runs, and that's what that's what the Reds need. So I, I think a, uh, he's certainly opening eyes up a Hall of Fame voter. It's like, okay, this is more what we expected. Uh, you know, you got to hit a home run to the first baseman, you know, to, to get into the Hall of Fame. But yeah, he's having a fabulous year. I know there's you know been better years statistically with on base percentage, everything like that. But I think as far as what he's meant to the team. I think he's this is, he's meant more to this team than maybe any other year he's played. He's probably not going to get very many, if any, first place votes for MVP, but he's going to get a few votes along the way. The guys who are headlining that list, Bryce Harper seems to have pulled in front in the NL. Fernando Tatis Jr. was the odds-on favorite a month ago. His team has gone into a tailspin. What has happened to the San Diego Padres, and how worried are you about that clubhouse right now with, with some of the scenes we've seen in dugouts in recent days? Well, yeah, it's been very interesting. I mean, Tatis and Machado have the same uh, you know, agents. Uh, they're you know, almost like a big brother, little brother type thing. And I think that's what it was. You know, unfortunately for them, it got caught on on camera and everything else. I thought it meant a lot. I didn't see me bring this up. The fact that Machado, 
know, yelled at Tatis in English you know, to let everybody know what was going on. It's like, hey, I want you know, people to know that I'm jumping on him for being selfish. He could have easily said in Spanish. I'm sure they talk in Spanish all the time you know, with each other. But I thought, I thought that was important to send that message. But, yeah, the team, uh, you know, <clears throat> you know the, the uh, offense have fallen apart. You know, they're pitching. They can't keep anybody healthy. Yeah, this is the most. It's probably gonna be the most disappointing team not to make the playoffs since that Red Sox team in 2011. You know that chicken and uh, beer thing. And they, uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Jace Tingler. I know uh, he's very close with the GM AJ Preller, but when things like this happen, someone's got to get fired. So extremely disappointing what what's happened there. As a young, exciting team, these things you know blew up in their face. It's gonna be an interesting winter to see what they do. And remember now, they've traded away a lot of prospects, too, to go for this thing, and it just has not worked out. No, it certainly hasn't. I don't think anybody saw them going into the tailspin that they're in right now. Bob, thank you very much for your insight, information here today. Have a great Tuesday, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, look forward to it. Thank you, guys. Take care. That is Bob Nightingale of USA Today. We chronicled that a little bit yesterday. I'm glad to hear his answers on both Tyler O'Neill and yep. Joey Votto, who are surging here in September. O'Neill, as mentioned, coming off the NL Player of the Week and has really established himself as a tough part of that Cardinals lineup. And then Joey Votto, did you see him again last night? A couple of home runs. He might sit a he might set a career high for home runs this season. He's at 33 right now. His career best is 37. And the way he's going, I wouldn't put it past him. No, I wouldn't put it past him either, and I'm I'm just so happy that it feels like – I mean, he's had so many incredible years going back a long time now in his career. He's been so productive for the Reds, but it does feel like because he's getting up there south of the border in the United States, he's almost getting more recognition this year than he has even when he was – you know, I, I mean, I know he won the MVP, right? But for after that, it felt like maybe he was kind of flying under the radar in the United States. People are recognizing what an incredible player Joey Votto is this year, and it's awesome. It's it's so well-deserved because he's had an incredible career. He's only been to the postseason four times in his career. He's hoping to make it five this season. He plays in a small market as well with a team that hasn't had, as I just alluded to, a whole bunch of success. Which do you think is a bigger determining factor in the in at least what we perceive, I guess in this case internationally, for Joey Votto? Yeah, it's tough to say. There's together right like if either one was different if he was playing in a bigger market or if he was on a small market team but that was perennially a playoff contender I think he would get a lot more recognition but I do kind of feel I know we always talk about this in hockey right and you know oh east coast bias with Toronto and Montreal and all that but I do think the big market bias is stronger in baseball than in almost any other sport because there's so much focus on the Yankees, on the Red Sox, on the Mets, even even though they're usually not very good. So I think if you put Joey Votto in one of those big premier baseball markets, yeah, the conversation around his career is completely different. Lots of conversation about training camp in this country. We will hit that next in the third hour of the program today. Lots of nice texts coming in for Jim Houston. We'll read a couple of those next segment as well. And we are efforting the Hall of Fame broadcaster for the final hour of our show today i got a comparable to make, one from each side of the Rockies. Which one are you more confident in? You can tell us next right here on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.